0: Did you bring your pink slip?
1: What does that mean? Oh, Wait, no, no, no,
0: no, 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 a not a pink slip. Sorry, did you bring your tardy slip? Oh, demerit, like a demerit for being late? you have got to get you into the classroom somehow. All right. I, I really never want to go to school
1: again. I'll keep, I'll keep learning, but I'm never going back to school. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith
0: McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division III football. We're the largest division with the smallest schools. I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. And my co-host, Keith McMillan, is back on the pod after a one episode and an extra day hiatus, and this is where Keith joins the dance party.
1: You can't see me through your headphones, but I am currently wearing hammer pants and doing the running man. Stop.
0: And if you are someone who comes from underneath a rock, emerges after the weekend, yawns, rubs their eyes, and say, hey, what did I miss? Well, first of all, you missed an entire podcast. Uh, and that's not to say that you can't listen to them out of order. But just so you know, I'm going to say this up front. Adam Turr and I did an entire extra podcast just about the Tommy Johnny game on Sunday. So although we won't ignore it here on the regular weekly pod as well, just know that there's another half hour of it or so. For those who are really interested in absorbing all the things about Division Three football, we have that for you.
1: It was worth the trouble because it nearly filled the stadium where baseball's Minnesota Twins play, and it also matched up two ranked teams in what might now be Division III's most fervent rivalry. You and Adam got to get into the weeds a little bit, and I enjoyed hearing from Frank Rakowski on how the rivalry has been revived and the clips from both coaches as well.
0: That's what you and I are going to talk about coming up in a little bit about the Tommy Johnny game, where this stands in the pantheon of rivalries. I think that's something that I promised on Twitter, so it's good to actually have that. Um, but yeah, if you missed that podcast, uh, it's the previous one in the feed. You've had an extra day to listen to it, and hey, maybe you thought it was this week's full podcast, and we're super confused about we only why we only talked about one game. In fact, there are a lot of things to catch up on this week. For example, when I said at the end of last week's podcast that I was keeping an eye out for Wheaton to stumble, I did not know in advance that felony charges would be brought against five Thunder players for their role in an alleged hazing incident that took place in March of 2016. That literally happened. That was announced like six hours after our podcast dropped. Uh, But in brief, if you've missed that story, Noah Spielman, James Cooksey, Kyler Kriegel, Benjamin Petaway, and Samuel Tabas were charged with aggravated battery, mob action, and unlawful restraint in the alleged incident regarding a player who had transferred in for the second semester of the 2015-16 school year. We're getting really down into the weeds here. Um, The most recent news is that uh, local police... The most recent news is that local police said they waited so long to bring charges in part because the victim required medical procedures for two tears in uh, shoulder muscles. So these players had already been punished with, according to uh, multiple published reports, 50 hours of community service, being assigned an eight-page essay, and then suspension from the first game of the 2016 season. And since then, following their arrest, the public learning about the story, all five have been suspended until further notice. Uh, Craigle is an All-American at center. Spielman is a starting defensive tackle. Uh, one of the other three players started until recently and was uh, supplanted in the starting lineup. Keith, there's a lot here, and uh, Wheaton football program, uh, well, uh, surrogates, I guess we'd call them, have been uh, actively pitching alternate versions of the story off the record that are more favorable to Wheaton College, but uh, this is something that thankfully is going to be settled in the legal system and not here.
1: Sure. And you always consider your sources, Pat. But I think the big takeaway here for those of us who aren't necessarily in the know is that the version of the story that results in felony charges and and frankly involves some pretty sick stuff is either one the college wasn't prepared to deal with or was attempting to deal with quietly. And that's where the reaction splinters, because some people get really angry and accusatory, and perhaps rightfully so. And when you add in that it's small college football at an institution famous for its evangelical Christianity, and you touch on some of the things that were allegedly said about Muslims during the incident, you get a story that's really hot to the touch now, as far as things happening in little old D3 go.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, the thing about... You talk about the version of the story that uh, we hear from Wheaton folks suggests that the college thought that this was not as serious an incident as uh, law enforcement apparently thinks that it it is and that they thought that they had dealt with it in a relatively fair and equitable manner. Um, You know, some of the stuff that, uh, uh, for example... And I know we're dangerously spitballing here on a, on a story that, as you said, is is pretty red hot. But uh, one of the other recent developments to this story, Keith, is that uh, a letter that was sent by the college to the victim of, of this uh, alleged hazing suggested to the victim that they did not find his story credible. And I'm only saying this out loud uh, because the college confirmed that the letter existed. College hasn't said anything else. College hasn't made a lot of comments, but confirmed that that letter existed. And that is probably why there's such a disparate reaction between law enforcement and the internal process that was done at Wheaton.
1: The other thing that that stands out, again, if you're sort of far away from this process and and you haven't read all the uh, articles about it in the Chicago Tribune and elsewhere, is that the players in, in some manner served their time quote, quote unquote um as as you listed out earlier and then as this became public knowledge and as the felony charges came down they're now removed from the team uh, again and and that's really where i think a lot of you know folks get real distrustful i guess of of the the team and the college where you say you know, if they were guilty of this before, why were why were they playing this whole time? Why were they allowed back on the team? And you explained why, um, because because the college thought it had dealt with it. But that's really where the perception of of what's gone wrong in this in this process really ticks off people who have, who are watching it from afar.
0: Yeah, I really do think that uh, Wheaton felt that it had done the done the right and appropriate thing here. I don't feel like Wheaton is an institution that would um, intentionally favor student athletes or football players uh, in order to create a better football program. That doesn't seem like something that I would expect out of Wheaton College. Uh, let's see, things happen on the field too. We'll uh, get to the 37,355 fans in a few minutes, but instead let's look at the fall of John Carroll or the autumn of John Carroll, which is the fall of John Carroll. Uh, Heidelberg never trailed in its game versus John Carroll on Saturday and really just thoroughly handled the blue streaks, beat them 47-21. to 21.
1: Yeah, and, and we'll chat a little bit more about that game later, but it was certainly the eye-opener of the weekend. It shook up the poll uh, quite a bit. You know, you, you saw uh, John Carroll drop from number nine out of the poll. Heidelberg moved in. Uh, and at this point, I think it might be time to consider that Tom Arth, who fueled the John Carroll return to prominence and is now coaching at Tennessee Chattanooga, is a really good coach who had a really good staff. And a lot of the same players are still on the roster for Rick Finati, including quarterback Anthony Meglin, running back Roe Golfin, and linebacker Mason McKenrick. Those are all guys who were big stars last year, still on the roster this year. But the Blue Streaks are not playing nearly as well as they did last season when they were a national semifinalist.
0: Tough situation for Fanati to jump into, and this is something we've uh, written about previously on the site, but he's a collegiate head coach for the first time. In fact, he's only had one year of on-field collegiate coaching experience last year as a defensive assistant at the University of Michigan. Previously, he was director of operations, which is a behind-the-scenes job. Um, You know, I think, Keith, it's too early to put John Carroll in the same camp as Capitol, which has yet to recover from losing Jim Collins more than a decade ago. But, uh, you know, maybe this is more like when John Carroll lost Tom Arth for the first time, right? When he was a quarterback and graduated. The play, the level of play dropped off, but they generally continued to be competitive, even if they weren't a threat to make the playoffs.
1: Well, now a team that is a threat to make the playoffs is Heidelberg. We talk from year to year, about that second team in the OAC behind Mount Union, who, who's consistently not just a uh, a playoff team, but one that goes deep into the postseason. And usually, that that second team in the OAC, if it makes the postseason, ha- has a chance to do some damage as well. And right now, with uh, with with John Carroll, uh, you know, losing forty seven twenty one to Heidelberg on Saturday, Baldwin Wallace losing to Mount Union fifty five seven, I think you're looking at Heidelberg right now. Being in the position of, of potentially being that number two team, are they good enough to challenge Mountain Union? Right now, you'd say just based on how Mountain Union played has played so far, you'd say no. Um, but now, now that's a team. All of a sudden, we were kind of just keeping an eye on them. And this week, now you really everybody's watching them, and, and every every voter is going to have to take a closer look at at what Heidelberg's done so far, which is uh, you know they they hung on at least forty points on. Three teams now and three victories. All teams that were winning, teams were winning records last year. Um, but but I think we just have to kind of keep an eye on them as far as are they going to be a uh, top 25 team around the fringes or are they going to be a, a team that creeps up into the top 10, maybe challenges Mountain Union?
0: We'll know more about that in two weeks. That's uh, October 7th, week 6, in which uh, Mount Union travels to Heidelberg. Uh, Heidelberg, the other key game on the schedule. Of course, they've already played Ohio Northern. That was one of the teams that they hung 40 on. Uh, Of course, they've played John Carroll. They play at Baldwin-Wallace in week 10 on November 4th. Uh, Maybe there's... uh, you know, is, uh, if Otterbein is a, a force to be contended with in the mid to upper level of that conference, that game is uh, October 14th, also at Heidelberg. So that is week seven. But that's week seven. Let's see. We still got some week four stuff. Um, yeah, let's talk about uh, Tommy Johnny here, Keith. I think that you and I are in uh, perhaps as good a position now as anybody would be to talk about where this rivalry ranks. When you and I were doing... Stuff and talking about rivalries, 12 years ago, let's say. I I don't think this game gets into the top tier, right? At that point, we're talking about Cordica Jug, we're talking about Monon Bell, we're talking about Amherst Williams. Um, you know, there are a couple of others we could throw in there, but generally, big three, those were the ones. And you know, the Tommy Johnny game was one that was kind of just not in the same tier and we have some kind of established protocols that suggest that uh, now the St. Thomas, St. John's rivalry needs to be up at the top. Yeah.
1: I mean the, the way you you judge rivalry above all uh, besides the pomp and circumstances, really are those two teams competitive uh, for, for a conference championship when they play that game. Generally those games are week 10, week 11, the the second week of November, last week of the season. Is there a conference championship on the line when Amherst Williams used to control the, the NESCAC and, uh, whether Cortland and Ithaca were in different conferences or not, they were, they were at playoff bursts on the line, randolph off Macon, Hampton, Sydney, and the ODAC, uh, Wabash and DePaul used to be in different conferences. They're now in the same conference, but, but this, this game meant a lot to those programs, um, because of because it was their rival, but also those games had a lot of times playoff implications, conference championship implications. So that's how uh, rivalries like those, like the Dutchman Shoes uh, between Union and RPI, that's how those those became big rivalries in the first place. You also add in the the, the regional aspect of it, which I think you and Adam talked about in uh, in depth on the uh, on the bonus podcast, which is you know what makes. Uh, Tommy Johnny is such a big deal now that you know St. John's has been good going back to you know the 60s uh NAIA for them uh, John Gallardi um, St. John's has pretty much never had a had a drop off except for really a couple years ago right after uh, after John retired but St. Thomas when they went through their down period um, it it really took until Glenn Caruso revived that program and now you've got both sides of the rivalry both teams are competitive right now. They're both nationally, um, you know, top 10 level programs. You got the regional rivalries. You got the, re- the, the, you know, the schools are about an hour apart. They recruit the same kind of kids. You get out of school and, and we, whether you move to Minneapolis, St. Paul or, or somewhere else in, in, in Minnesota or the Midwest, you run into alumni of the other school. So you got that. And then I think you just have these really, really dedicated fan bases, probably St. John's, to be quite honest, maybe the most dedicated fan base in D3. And, and you have the, the Tommies now, as you guys said a lot on that on that bonus podcast, not quite matching them in terms of filling the stadium, but pretty close on on Saturday. And so now you have all the elements of a great rivalry.
0: Right, fervor, fervor. I think is huge in a in a great rivalry. Being able to be competitive with each other, which is why the uh, you know when it was a when it was a Johnny Tommy game for 14 years in a row or so, and uh, it took uh, Saint Thomas uh, more than a decade to break back through. That's one of the reasons why this rivalry was not in that initial list. But you know, we on the D3Hoops.com side of the house have talked about Hope Calvin. I'm sorry, Calvin Hope being the top rivalry in Division three men's basketball, in part because um, now some years ago uh, they put 11,000 in the stands for a game that was played at uh, the Van Andel Arena in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And until another Division three basketball rivalry could do that, we have kind of granted most favored rival status, or most favored rivalry status on Calvin Hope. Um, this is a, basically a very analogous situation right here for the Tommy John game.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. and uh, I'm barely understanding you. You're almost speaking Greek to me here because you're, you're talking D3 hoops and <laughs> not D3 football, but uh, more than 37,000 in the Minnesota Twins stadium over the weekend. Yeah. The previous record had been 17 and change uh, for a Wyatt game. And it had bumped, you know, had gone from 14, 15. It, it had always been around somewhere in the mid-teens. Um, if you look at the list that we maintain on the site, there are, you know, three, four dozen games where 11,000 or more. But then to make that jump from 17 to 37, um, to to fill again a professional team stadium, to do it with two competitive teams, um, I, I think you just. You know, nothing like that has has ever been done in D3 before. And it sounds like from the way they're talking about it, they don't know if this will be done again. The game, as far as we know, is going back to St. John's next year um, because St. Thomas is the the side that's willing to give up that on-campus game to play that uh, as a home game. But it's the one thing I want to say before we move on is that you can't rank... The reason I've always been reluctant to rank rivalries is because nobody's ever going to tell me that Secretary's Cup rivalry is better than Randolph-Macon Hampton City, and I'm not going to convince Ryan Tips that it's better than Monon Bell. with Wabash and DePaul. we're not going to convince the the LLPP, the posters on our board, that it's better than the the best rivalries in the in the Liberty League, the Dutchman shoes. Um, you're never going to convince a Cortica Jug person that. Um, that that the the same the Johnny tommy game is better than ever because if you have some kind of natural pull or natural attachment to the rivalry that's near and dear to your heart, that's the one that's the best. But in terms of accomplishing something that's never been accomplished before, in terms of putting top ten teams, putting fervent fan bases in into um, a rivalry setting and doing it in week four, not necessarily in week eleven. Uh, I think Tommy Johnny rivalry has now accomplished something that no other rivalry has.
0: One other off the field story before we uh, before we move forward. Uh, after canceling its week three game versus Pacific and then having a bye week this past weekend, Occidental plans to play its upcoming game literally. This email from the athletic department spokesperson, quote, the plan is to play. So that means hosting Redlands on Saturday night for just its second game of the season. Even NESCAC teams have played more games than Occidental has this season.
1: Well, I think it would be nice to see Occidental get back on the field. Um, we don't necessarily expect them with fewer than than 40 players to to be competitive with Redlands, which is a fairly good um, Skyac team, Preseason favorite, most likely in uh, in in that conference, but um, having heard the way players who had these had a, had the Pacific game taken away from them, having heard the way they reacted to that, just the opportunity to play. When you really boil everything down, just the opportunity to play college football is why everyone's doing this, and uh, and just the the opportunity to get back out there and play, I think, will be very welcome in the uh, in the Occidental community.
0: I think it was probably also a, a welcome way for the College of Worcester and the Worcester program to uh, kind of deal with an emotional week for them. Campus and the football program have been mourning the loss of senior offensive lineman Clayton Guybe, who died last Sunday after he said he was not feeling well following the team's win versus Ohio Wesleyan. His team opened Saturday's game at DePauw in the missing man formation in tribute. And
1: y- whether you know the first thing about Worcester or DePauw, um, you just have, you know, you see that moment and you it's, it's a somewhat at the very least it's a, it's touching because you, you can, you know, put your own, it could happen to any of us, right? Any team, any, um, any player on your team It wasn't like anyone who did anything they weren't supposed to be doing. And, and so when you, when you find out, um, that happens to a player and you see the emotional reaction after the first play. And then when you, when you hear, uh, Frank Colaprete, the, the, uh, Worcester coach talk about the way DePauw treated Worcester and treated that moment I, I think that's like a very YD3 moment right it, it just um, you know it shows sportsmanship it, it-, it r- reminds you that you're here for something bigger that you're thankful that you're blessed enough to be able to play everyone who was able to play on Saturday because uh, their, uh, their-, their friend and senior offensive lineman um, wasn't
0: The time in the podcast where we should mention that the d3 footballcom around the nation podcast is currently sponsored by fanraise fanraise that's an e-commerce platform that provides hassle-free team merchandise shops for athletics programs you can find them at the um, Keith we've uh, you know, we've talked about these guys uh, a couple weeks and we're very thankful for their support on this podcast um, you know, one of the things that uh, we have uh, focused on previously of course is about you know how it's easy to set up their online stores and it doesn't cost anything to set up and you can have uh, more than 125 unique pieces of apparel and accessories on those stores and they don't close but you know they're not one of those time limited things that you can only have up for three weeks uh, we haven't talked so much about uh, increasing fundraising for teams because that is uh, you know obviously another reason why you put your merch out there right it's not just to get merchandise into the hands of your fans although you know from an altruistic standpoint that's a great thing to do um, you know it's also to have the money come back to the program
1: Sure, and, and Fanraise has a, a profit share model that's uh, unlike uh, any other one out there. So that's you know one of the main reasons you, you, you can raise money for your team and then you get your time back. You know, Fanraise ships all the orders directly to customers. You never have to sort through or coordinate a bulk order. You get your time back. You raise money for your program. It's, uh, it's a great deal. We're happy to be uh, be sponsored by Fanraise. And if you are uh, interested in setting up one of the online stores, visit thefanraise.com today to sign up for your free store.
0: Moving on with the rest of our podcast, Keith, I am giving my game ball for this week to Christopher Newport cornerback Tyrell Noel. He's intercepted a pass in each game this year for the captains and picked off two of them Saturday in CNU's 16-8 win at Montclair State. That gives him five on the season. His first pick in Saturday's game led to a touchdown drive by the captains and the other came on a Montclair pass to the end zone. I just also wanted to point out, captains are 3-1. and Only loss is the 33-30 defeat by Frostburg State earlier this month. So, I mean, I'll be going to be waiting for key games over the next couple of weeks, but it's fair to say that Christopher Newport is on my top 25 watch list. Uh, also, I need to create a top 25 watch list and make a note of that. <laughs> yeah, you may want to
1: get on that. Um, I honestly wanted to give my game ball to someone for offense this week just to, to be a tendency breaker. But uh, Heidelberg's defense intercepted John Carroll quarterbacks five times in the week's biggest upset and uh, turned a two-score game into a four-score game with consecutive interception return touchdowns off the starting quarterback and his replacement to sandwich the break between the third and fourth quarters of that 47-21 Heidelberg win. The offense helped, too, as Tyler Stoyle passed for three scores and more than 300 yards with three receivers having seven or more catches. Look, the student princes, that win, knocked ninth, ranked John Carroll clear out of the pole, moved Heidelberg in at number 24. That is where the
0: game won. For my riser, my team on the rise in the poll this week, I'm looking at a couple of teams that slid past others, and we'll see if we can make sense of, uh, of why. First off, near the top of the poll, North Central slipped past Wheaton, taking over the number four spot. Uh, it took a flip of – we're getting geeky here. Poll, poll watching 201 here. It's the 200-level course took a flip of 16 points each way to do that, or the equivalent of moving one spot on a little more than half of the ballots. If you think that uh, Wheaton's All-American Center and starting defensive tackle won't be back this year because of the legal matter we talked about earlier, then I can see where that might lead some of the voters to make that change. Uh, I'm also looking at the pairing of Delaware Valley and Frostburg State. So these two are kind of tied together because they similarly dismantled Stevenson. That seemed so much better when I said it in my head. Similarly dismantled Stevenson dismantled Stevenson in a similar manner. Uh, anyway, regardless of however I want to say it, those are two teams that should, uh, should remain close together, and I'm not sure they're currently in the right order.
1: Well, for my riser in the poll this week, I'm going to go with uh, Wisconsin Stout, number 22 now this week. And really, they got pulled up by virtue of St. Thomas's win against St. John's, which either pulled the Tommies back up voter ballots or justified the faith that voters showed by not moving the Tommies too far down. But the Blue Devils remember have beaten St. Thomas, so if you go by the transitive property, you got to find a spot for them on your ballot. They go to Platteville and then Whitewater the next two weeks, so we'll find out what they're made of. But for now, you kind of sort of obligated to give them credit for beating the Tommies, who beat the Johnnies, who've looked darn good so far.
0: If Stout finishes, you know, six and three, and then is, you know, that basically makes them four and three in the in the Wyac. That's still a a really good team, and even if that's the fourth place team in the Wyac. Some years, the fourth place team in the Wyac is in that number 22 range, so I could totally see, uh, even if they don't run the table, they end up still being rankable or in the top 25. Fire. For my slider, for my team dropping down the pole, there actually aren't a lot of teams that slid in the pole without losing or without a clear explanation. Uh, I already mentioned Wheaton above. Um, and my big slider of the week is someone who wasn't ranked in our poll. It's a team that was ranked in the coaches poll after our voters gave them four points, four points. But you can go search for the AFCA Division three football podcast for discussion of that. And I will say that for St. John's, I think number nine where they are now is about right. I still think they're better than Frostburg and DelVal, but I don't think they'll hang with the teams at the very top of our top 25.
1: You can never resist taking a shot at the old ASCA poll.
0: I just, man, you know, you see a disparity like that, um, you know, four votes in our poll and number 25 in the other. I, I just, you know, it, it, it begs something. Something's going to happen. Something's going to give. Often it, uh, it gives pretty quickly.
1: Well, I don't, I don't even look at any other poll. That's how much I trust the 25-person the panel we have. And I know that's the company line, but it's also the truth. Um, for my slider, uh, Wabash Comes down the uh, Or actually is off my ballot this week uh, They they were just barely on it So it wasn't that they they Fell very far, but look I, I get the win is a win logic But when the Little Giants trail or lead by a point Or two nearly the whole way A field goal with six eleven left provided some breathing room in a 25-21 win against Hiram When they If they do that While George Fox is blowing out Wisconsin-Eau
0: Pronunciation 101
2: Bunavistic Monon Bell,
1: Bunavistic Monon Beauclair,
2: Monon Bell clear.
1: Uh Barry's beating a top rival, Framingham State, and Springfield, and DePauw. Rolling Hobart and Johns Hopkins are doing what they do. It just goes to show that there are too many teams winning impressively to to give a spot low on your ballot to a team just because you did so last week. There are 249 teams, only 25 spots in the poll. So by nature, there's going to be a lot of competition for those spots. And just barely beating an OK at best team doesn't necessarily mean you're top 25 worthy.
0: Yeah, you know, Keith, this week is actually the first week in which I did not completely rip up my ballot. In the previous weeks, I didn't even look at what I had uh, how I had voted previously, and I just started slotting teams uh, 1 to 25 individually individually. Uh, from a from a blank slate. This week I actually did look and go back to what I had done the previous week, but I am usually not I'm not opposed to dropping a team that that doesn't lose and I think we've had that conversation on this podcast before.
1: Yeah, and I also think early in the season because there's so there's so little to work with, it's okay to make Sweeping changes to your to your ballot. When you have eight or nine games to go by, one game shouldn't affect it nearly as much as when you only have uh, two results or three results to judge off of. I mean, you know, you you see a team play okay. A good example is John Carroll last week that that barely beating Baldwin Wallace. That was probably a warning, uh, and now we, we saw what we saw this week, and uh, we may see the same thing from Wabash or. We may look back in eight weeks and say, ah, oh, that was just their one average game. They didn't play that well. Or, or maybe Hiram turns out to be pretty good this season. Who knows? But for right now, given the information we're working with, you just have so many other teams that are 3-0, and 4-0 in impressive fashion that if you're, you're giving away spots low on your ballot uh, to teams who, who aren't impressing, you know, you're not really doing it justice. Before we completely move on from sliders, we should acknowledge that John Carroll's drop from number nine to out of the rankings is extreme but not unprecedented, according to crackd3football.com researcher Frank Rossi. Harden Simmons made the same drop in 2007. Pat, and you, I noticed you grabbed a, a couple other times this happened as well. Um, in week eight, I'm sorry, in week one, 2009, number eight, Willamette, dropped clear out of the poll. Um and uh week 3 2012 number 11 trinity texas dropped out so it's not completely unprecedented the thing all those weeks have in common is it's very early in the season you may have a preseason uh, thought notion about a team it may even be built on the season before and then the results don't deliver it's okay to drop a team from from right the fringe of the top 10 clear on out of the poll i will say though for st thomas they, they got much more benefit of the doubt when they lost to the Wisconsin Stout, and they turned around and justified it.
0: Well, talking about St. Thomas, uh, we'll use the uh, interview portion of our podcast right here. We talked, as we've said a couple times, there's a whole entire podcast about the Tommy Johnny game. Um, one of these clips is from that, but there's, a, there's more here. And if you're only interested in uh, listening to one Around the Nation podcast in any given week, listen to this one, I guess, because we'll also talk about this game. Uh, we're talking with Glenn Caruso, the St. Thomas head coach. The first response you'll hear is him talking during the news conference about him and his team staying in the moment in front of the big crowd. And then I follow up with a couple of questions one-on-one.
2: My hope for... The players was very simply that they played with joy in their hearts and that they fought in the most positive manner that they can and battled. And we knew that, look, it's a really good football team. You know, they would well, they come into the game like sixty eight to three or something average score. And um, I just wanted our guys not to get too caught up in the game that they couldn't enjoy the moment that was out there. There have been a lot, a lot Of great football teams and a lot of games and a lot of rivalry games over a hundred years in college football and in 40 years of division three and for us to be the team that's blessed with the opportunity to be able to set the attendance record and do so in fine fashion is an absolute honor
0: where does this rivalry go from here? This is like the pinnacle of Division Three right now.
2: I mean, we've done a lot of really neat things in the last 10 years. We've grown the attendance from 7,000 our first year to 30. I don't know what it exactly. I'm going to say 37, 35, whatever it is, 37,000. So that's pretty awesome. I, one of the highlights of this rivalry to me was really playing twice in one season two years ago because I think that speaks to how good both teams are to make it into the playoffs and then win playoff games to face, face uh, against each other. But it just I think either both teams fuel the other and I feel like it's a, a beautiful symbiotic relationship. I, I know that our program is better for the legacy that that is left behind by prior rival teams and that starts with Coach Gallardi. And my hope would be that our strength makes our rivals better as well. I know you
0: addressed this in the news conference portion, but you know, everybody knows Treadle's name, everybody knows Roberts, everybody knows Parks. Nobody really knows Jeremy Molina.
2: No, and, and uh, that might, might have been part of the reason why he snuck out those yards today, but one of the things I really love about our players is um, they work their har- hardest and they are, they're patient, and when their opportunity arises, usually they make the most of it, and that's what you saw to Jeremy today.
0: You guys are coming off of a pretty low low a couple weeks ago, right, taking a regular season loss in a place maybe you don't expect to, and then how does it feel to kind of turn that around 180
2: here? I, I don't think it's 180 thank you I don't think it's 180 I I certainly look I know we lost and we won but I still feel like it got us back in the direction that we need to go but as I told the team after the game I'm happy I'm excited you should be too but man we got a lot of work this is simply a building block that we've got to grow from if this is the highlight of our season we're not going to be where we want to be so we have work to do
0: no hidden highlights in that, Keith. Uh, every game was uh, every highlight in that game very out in the open. But let's talk about some hidden highlights throughout Division Three on Saturday. And I'm going to start with uh, East Texas Baptist beating Bellhaven, 79 to 40. Late game, long game. Didn't have details on it until well after we closed up shop for the night on Saturday, and the details are impressive uh ETBU led 34 26 at the half scored less than two minutes into the third quarter to go up by 15 later they rolled up 24 unanswered to make it 72 32 and frankly from there the rest doesn't matter but uh the numbers some of the ones that pop off the page on offense Two Tiger quarterbacks combined to go 31 for 40, with uh, Drew Smith doing most of that damage. Two receivers caught a pair of touchdowns apiece, and each went over 100 yards. Uh, East Texas Baptist is going to get its biggest test of the season next week with Harden Simmons coming to town, however. And we'll see how good that offense really is.
1: Well, again, my hidden highlight is not really hidden because it's in the play of the week highlight reel, but it's worth mentioning anyway. Trinity of Texas. They won a game against Chapman more or less had no business winning, a game that functions as a lesson in never giving up. The Tigers allowed the Panthers to score 21 points in the first quarter and carry a 35-21 lead into the fourth. Even when Trinity tied it, Chapman calmly drove for the game-winning 27-yard field goal attempt, except Trinity blocked it to send the game to overtime. Trinity has the ball first, goes nowhere, misses a 43-yard kick wide left. So then Chapman takes over, and all it needs to do to win is is basically not move the ball and, and, and kick its field goal um, or score in any way, shape, or form. Except Jacob Blankenship comes flying in on first down, knocks the ball from Ricky Batista's grasp, and Mitchell Globe scoops it and goes 63 yards for the game-ending score and a memorable finish for Trinity, while Chapman falls to 0-2 in the worst way.
0: That was just a fantastic way in which that game ended. We have the highlights, as you mentioned. Um, it doesn't really do it justice, even though they're two great highlights because it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't talk about all the backstory that you brought into that.
1: Right. There, there was a lot of context to that game. Chapman really should have won it um, in regulation. They should have won it in first overtime. And, um, and probably, you know, they were so far in control early in the game when, when you scored 21 in the first quarter that uh, they're, they're probably almost definitely kicking themselves for letting that one get away.
0: My most surprising result from week four has to be Misericordia defeating Wilkes 43-14. Another one of those games, Keith, where I, again, look at the score and make sure it was actually input correctly, not input backwards. Misericordia had only won one game in the month of September in its entire history before this game on Saturday. Sophomore quarterback Brady Williams moved into the lineup for the Cougars in week two versus Albright, and his performance has steadily improved uh, to the point where Saturday threw for 174 yards, ran for 218 in the win. Uh, Misery isn't likely to find some company right away for that lone win as it travels to Stevenson this upcoming week, but at least opponents are going to have to start changing their game plans a little bit going forward.
1: Uh, I see what you did there. I double taked Took on that one, too. Grove City's win got a bunch of shine and snap judgments, but Misericordia has had four straight one in nine seasons and, and got an early win this year. Uh, anyway, my double take is for Buena Vista. A week after the dramatic finish, and proper pronunciation on the the, the podcast, uh, that a week after that dramatic finish against Central, they lost uh, 73-34 at Loris. It was a 28-21 game early in the second quarter, and then Loris started getting some defensive stops, and Buena Vista, uh, they didn't. Loris scored on drives of three, four, six, and 5 plays wrapped around halftime to blow it open. The Dewhawks had 18 possessions and 631 yards. And, hey, this is starting to sound like stat of the week.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a stat of the week for you, but it's going to sound pretty much the opposite. Uh, you know, this one, because uh, the box score is borderline unbelievable, as in I'd like to take the video of the game and double check that it actually even makes sense. This is uh, from Wesley's 66-0 win uh, against William Patterson. And this is not your normal 66-0 game, if if there's a such thing as a normal 66 nothing game. Wesley held Patterson to 20 yards of total offense. That's right. Less offense than you might get from going one end of your city lot to the other. Uh, Peterson only snapped the ball, Peterson. Patterson only snapped the ball 43 times, threw for just eight yards, and here's the kicker. Uh, um, You know, the kicker. Uh, Somehow they possessed the ball for 29 minutes and 31 seconds despite having just two first downs. And, again, 20 yards of total offense. For
1: my stat of the week, uh, let's take a look at uh – Chaz Middlebrook, uh, Pat's favorite, because uh, because he interviewed him for, <laughs> uh, for kickoff one time. Uh, the McMurray running back, he's leading the country in rushing right now. Just a mere 24 carries for 163 yards and one touchdown this week, uh, 6.7 yards per carry. That is uh, so far, and only his longest rush, by the way, 27 yards. That's his worst game of the season. The other games have been uh, 291 yards, 279, 173, all uh, at least three touchdowns. He is way out in front as far as uh, uh, the—actually, not that far out in front um, for leading the country in rushing. He's got 895 yards through four games. He's almost to 1,000, well on pace for 2,000, assuming— uh, he stays healthy for twelve games. He's in front of Chiwan uh, Marshall from Geneva by about fifty yards and Joey Valdivia from Lake Forest by a little more than a hundred yards. So the uh, running game certainly is not dead, especially at uh, McMurray.
0: that's a that's a guy I got to get out and see play. Uh, they their uh, their uh, their best opponent in my general vicinity would be Saint Scholastica. They play up there on November fourth. I'm not saying I'm dying to go to Duluth on November fourth. Um, but if I do, I'll dress warmly and see if uh, see what Chaz can do against uh, one of the better defenses in the UMAC.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a good way to freeze.
0: Uh, let's see. Are we doing a coin flip on quick misses, quick hits?
1: I mean, I can uh, I can I can take quick misses because I believe I was one of the five who uh, failed to pick a team that would get to four and zero this week. But Pat, you picked one that didn't even play because SUNY Maritime might have gotten its name on game day on ESPN on Saturday morning, but they uh, did not take the field. Tyler, come on
0: out and get your whooping. Yeah, I will take a whooping for that. Uh, I can't imagine uh, how that happened, although it happens to all of us. I clearly need to look at the schedule better. Uh, Let's see, quick hits. Second time around was the charm for picking John Carroll to be upset as it uh, came through this time in week four. Uh, Only one of us correctly picked a team going 4-0, but that was Adam Turr. They picked Franklin and Marshall frank was the winner of the attendance is right although as he put it i was just a couple of reverse digits away from winning both showcases um i nearly hit it on the head 37 535 is what i predicted for the attendance for that you know that football game on saturday instead of 37,355. it's like you you got your 50 50 raffle ticket and the guy starts reading off the numbers and i'm like ah crap so close uh so Frank was the closest without going over he had 36106 and by the way this is not tickets sold this is actual turnstile count that is literally how many tickets they scanned coming through the door uh also thanks uh, to our quick hits guest this week that was Howard Sinker digital sports editor for the Minneapolis Star Tribune and um, by the way all those nu-
1: all those numbers are uh the Johnny Tommy attendance if uh, if you weren't uh, clear on what we were talking about there.
0: I think we've only mentioned it four or five times in this particular podcast, let alone Sundays. So it's good to be clear. And we're up to our Twitter question, and it comes from Kurt Poole at at Pool. Do you think the kneeling will hit Division Three? Uh, you know, actually, Keith, we've had some kneeling in Division Three. It's not something that we've kind of dug into because I'm not sure that's the direction that we want to start diving into. I, I'm not sure I want to get clicks to the website that way, but it, it is something at least that has happened in Division Three.
2: Well,
1: yeah, I, and I have to be careful answering this question because in my day job I need to remain impartial to be able to function as a journalist. But to answer the question as it pertains to Division Three, I think if if uh, kneeling, and, and he's referring to kneeling uh, during the National Anthem. Uh, I think if it was going to sweep Division Three, it would have by now. Uh, for one, it's not really a new thing. Colin Kaepernick got noticed kneeling more than a year ago, and it was only because the president squarely focused his ire on the NFL that this weekend became what it was. Uh, but people have been observing the National Anthem in their own ways for decades, whether you want to harken back to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf in the 90s, or Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the Mexico City medal stand in 1968. Specifically, this current slow-building protest is really in reaction to the spate of police violence, where, let's make this clear, the victims are generally black and the killers go unpunished by the justice system. That's not new, and so I don't think you'd suddenly see it come to Division Three. On one hand, college is often where protests take hold because you're dealing with educated people who often have the time and the means to think outside themselves and have little to lose in terms of job and income for families by speaking out. And to be honest, Division three football teams are generally majority white and kneeling during the national anthem is not an issue that we've seen white people respond to with the same fervor as people of color. If we're being entirely honest as well, many people are conflating any demonstration during the anthem with uh, respect, with disrespect for the American flag or dislike of the country, as though you can't love something but not be in love with every part of it. So it takes some courage to demonstrate uh, if you know it's not going to be popular. And I think it's likely that Division three coaches and administrators, if they had that courage and desire to speak out, we would have seen it by now.
0: Kurt Poole, I don't know what kind of answer you were expecting, but uh, that's the uh, that's the definitive answer from the uh, Around the Nation podcast. Um, this was another question that was asked of us in response to this. How about, and I'm just withholding the name because it could apply to a bunch of people, uh, as a candidate for the top 25? They're three and zero. Keith, this is here. Uh, this is the opportunity where you get to tell us today how many teams are unbeaten.
1: I mean, this is literally one of my favorite things that I used to do for when I was writing the Around the Nation uh, column. Uh, you just count because I think it's so easy to forget just how huge Division 3 is, or to, to not even not not even forget to just not know that there are nearly 30 conferences, nearly 250 teams. Right now there are 13 teams at 4-0, 26 more at 3-0. Uh UW Oshkosh and Stout are at 2-0, and that's not even that's not even counting the uh the team. So you're looking at 39, 41, at least, you know, maybe 45 unbeaten teams, you can't squeeze them all into the top 25.
0: No, indeed. The laws of physics uh, definitely apply here.
1: Yeah, you don't have to be a math major for that one.
0: Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. Keith, I kind of want to just create a longer loop of this music bed to let it last throughout the entirety of every thought. You think, you're, uh, you think your friend DJ Mentos would be all right with that?
1: Uh, he actually specifically said you need me to do anything to it before we use it, so I'm sure you could do it.
0: Wilmington now has as many wins as it had in the previous seven seasons combined. How's that for a number? As the Quakers defeated Capitol 37-30 in overtime on Saturday. So that magic number is two. Two wins this season, multiple wins for the first time since 2008 a win in a conference game in the OAC for the first time since 2012. Uh, and it was uh, possible at the end because freshman Leroy Wilson batted away a pass at the goal line in overtime to preserve that victory. And with that, I think we can officially say the Wilmington program has gotten off the mat.
1: Well, we'll, uh, we'll see how far off the mat they've gotten. They play John Carroll this coming week. We'll stay in the OAC. Mount Union's game, again, It's not worth discussing in depth as it shredded Baldwin Wallace 55-7, but we should keep, ta- keep tabs regularly on their quarterback play. Uh, D'Angelo Fulford only threw 12 passes, but he completed 10 for 188 yards and three touchdowns. He's been the starter in all three games so far. Uh, a six-foot, 155-pound senior transfer from Kentucky Christian named Robert Powell came in during the first drive of the third quarter for Mountain Union and threw one pass. And Dom Davis, who ended last season as the starter, through his first pass in Saturday's game following a timeout at the 9.39 mark of the fourth quarter. Mountain Union has outscored opponents 182 to 10 so far, so there's been plenty of time to experiment under Setter, but they really haven't needed to or, or wanted to, as Fulford has thrown 51 of the 63 passes so far for the Purple Raiders. So if you've been following someone else and not really paying attention to Mountain Union, this is where you make a note to self to start paying attention to Fulford, who is the nation's leader in passing efficiency by a lot. Um, because it uh, won't be the last time we discuss it.
0: I think this needs to be a, a regular feature as well—the uh, Mountain Union quarterback watch.
1: Well, except that I think what we're seeing here is that uh, Luke Porman, Dom Davis, guys who who had success starting for Mountain Union last year when they were uh, auditioning a handful of freshmen. I, I don't think they are um, the part of the plan right now. I, it looks looks like again from afar, not having. Any uh, deep insight in Alliance that um, that D'Angelo Fulford is the guy?
0: That's one of the things about a, a team blowing out so many opponents is that guys might get a lot of snaps, but they're not going to throw a lot of passes. What we need in uh, what we need in stat, well, we need in stats whether that's Stat Crew or, or Presto, we need you guys to do this: is uh, add a stat line that uh, describes how many snaps a quarterback took. Thank you. I'll put in my support request tomorrow. Uh, let's see at yeah, Frostburg States win at Rowan. That's a 13th in a row. Bobcats are four and for the first time since 1999, 24, uh, nothing win versus the profs and the uh, Frostburgs run defense allowed just 46 yards rushing. Okay. So that's a little higher than the average they had coming in, but, uh, 11 yards per game as a rushing defense average, that's a little tough to maintain.
1: We mentioned last week, the big center Barry showdown, uh, in the SAA and it, uh, wasn't an offensive showcase by any means. Um, Barry just getting over 300 yards total. Both teams rushing for barely more than 100. But the big difference in that one was uh, Barry forced four turnovers. Center didn't force any. Barry wins 28-14. They take control of the SAA and almost eke into the poll. They are the first team in others receiving votes.
0: Yeah, I think they would get into the poll. There just have not been a lot of teams in the lower half of the poll that have lost and dropped out. We don't have more than one or two teams dropping out, so it doesn't open up a lot of spots. Uh, but uh, you know, if you're thinking about a team, you got to keep an eye out and keep a, a spot, maybe keep it warm for. Carnegie Mellon should probably be on that list. That's a team that's 3-0 and with a, a win at WashU in the opener, however, is the only one to write home about right now especially because Thomas Moore is struggling. They have W&J coming up in two weeks, and then they finish with Case and uh, with Westminster. So we will definitely know by the end of the season where Carnegie Mellon stands.
1: Well, uh, for teams that didn't start the season in the top 25 but have either moved in or have moved on to the the radar, how about Brockport? Uh, Fell behind for the first time this week uh, against Utica, but uh, kept on rolling, 128-14. Beautiful balance in their game. Uh, 244 passing yards, 233 rushing, held Utica to 210 yards total. At that, that, it's it's happens every year where there's some team that you know you think maybe a six and four, seven and three type team, and they come blazing out of the gates. And and right now, for me, Brockport's a team I, I put you know fairly high up on the ballot.
0: It's almost like you take preseason expectations for them and St. John Fisher and kind of completely flip them on their heads. Maybe not this year's preseason uh, thoughts about Fisher. Um, although they were ranked 23rd in our preseason poll because we opened that up to all 25 voters. But uh, in kickoff, we predicted them to go 5-5. Five and five. They're 0-4 right now. I thought 5-5 five and five was too pessimistic. Now it might not even be attainable. And before we uh, move on with the rest of the podcast, just one final note. On Monday, Tyler Hopperton, who was the interim coach at Mount St. Joseph, had that interim tag removed and he'll have slightly more job security as Mount St. Joseph non-interim head coach. Uh, Mount St. Joseph, two and two here for the Lions in the early portion of the season. Keith, I thought we'd skip the Craig Burroughs collection for a week. I also did not have a chance to get out into my garage on Sunday, so that's a good reason to uh, come back to it. Why don't we talk a little bit instead about week five instead of talking about boxes?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I apologize to anyone who has the podcast as part of their Monday routine since we're a day late. That means we're a day closer to Saturday. So let's talk about uh, this pretty good week coming up in the top 25. Not necessarily a great week throughout D3 as far as uh, huge matchups or rivalries or anything. But really, I really like what I see in uh, in the top 25. Starts with uh, Wisconsin Whitewater at number three, uh, UW-Oshkosh. Whitewater, those two early losses to uh, Illinois Wesleyan and Concordia-Moorhead, put them behind the eight ball a little bit. They bounced back against Wash U. Now they get a chance to pretty much wipe the slate clean uh, at Oshkosh, a team they were they were neck and neck with uh, last season.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, too, coming after a, a bye week and coming off of a little bit of confidence, it, you could really see this as an opportunity for Whitewater to kind of completely retool things and come out with some completely different stuff for this game.
1: And it also it just means they it sort, it sort of would validate the the AQ uh, system, right? The fact that you can play whoever you want in in non conference. Games or in case of a WIAC team, whoever will take a game against you right. if you're Wisconsin Whitewater, um, you play them non-conference and then you get into your conference and and if you you control what you what you can control in your conference, you're fine. And uh, to be honest, Oshkosh has looked pretty good, but they they have had consecutive bye weeks and uh, and and had a not very competitive game the week before that. So aside from their opener at John Carroll, oh, they're they're, they're, they're working on you know. Not really haven't been challenged.
0: Oh, and John Oh, and John Carroll's not a ranked team anymore.
1: Yeah. Another uh, great game next week. How about number 14, Whitworth at Linfield? Number eight. We've been looking forward to this um, pretty much since we realized Whitworth's going to be pretty good this year. And uh, Linfield lost a ton from that very good team they had last season. The thing about being stuck on an island, and by island we mean uh, not the state of Oregon uh, or Washington – we uh, we mean the D3 island. There's there's only uh, 16 teams or whatever west of the Rockies, so you don't get a chance to see these huge games very often. Um, but Whitworth at Linfield uh, is one you'll get to see, and you'll literally get to see it even if you have a uh, East Coast one o'clock game in D3 because it, it will start about uh, the time your game gets over.
0: Yeah, I'm actually probably willing to pay the 12 bucks pay per view for this uh, on Linfield stream. Um, you know every obviously everybody else your mileage may vary, but uh, this is one I might actually pay to watch
1: Yeah, uh, another one you may want to peek in on number 19 Illinois Wesleyan at number five Wheaton uh, The CCIW's already had some pretty huge clashes uh, early in the season Wheaton beat Carthage uh, a couple weeks ago, and that was before Wheaton became a national story uh, Illinois Wesleyan of course became a national story for football reasons because uh, because it beat Whitewater and uh, right now, you know, this game doesn't involve North Central at all, but you have three uh, pretty strong teams all ranked in the top 20 at the top of the CCIW. Harden Simmons at East Texas Baptist. You mentioned that one earlier in the podcast. Uh, also in the YAC, UW Stout at UW Platteville. Both teams are currently in the top 25. May not be the case after Saturday. We'll see about that. And uh, number thirteen, Johns Hopkins at Ursinus, which is surprisingly four and zero. And then this one, uh, Coe is coming off a kind of a rough loss to Simpson on Saturday, but otherwise three and one, uh, and generally plays Wartburg pretty tough.
0: And this was Around the Nation podcast number 177 for the week of September 26th, 2017. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast because that will help other football fans find it. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and other music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at DJMentos.com. Thanks to our guests, Glenn Caruso and Sports Information Director Gene McGivern for their time on this edition of our show. And, of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter, and Keith is at D3Keith. We also have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know that? You can join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com with a legitimate email address. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook as well. All sorts of content new to D3Football.com every week during the season, so if you saw the D3Football.com play of the week on Mondays, so will also have Around the Region, Columns on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Adam Turer drops in his Around the Nation column on Thursday. Our weekly quick hits predictions come out on Friday, and then we have our wall to wall game coverage on Saturdays. Sunday, snap judgments from Adam Turr and of course, a new D3Football.com Top 25. Thanks for listening to the Around the Nation podcast.
1: Uh, was that maybe the newsiest week of D3 ever?
0: There's a lot of stuff going on around here, man. It is, um, it's, uh, it's busy. All
1: right, we'll leave it at that. I got hammer pants to dance in. It's
0: too legit to quit.
1: Not bad. Let's quit. Let's quit, actually. Let's quit before we, uh, before we make this worse.
0: Please, Hammer, don't hurt him.